Welcome to the Retireology Podcast with Cameron Bernetsky and John Williamson, a podcast devoted to getting you to and through retirement. Hey, John, how are you doing? Cameron, how are you doing, my friend? Good. You know, I was uh, I was thinking I was listening to another of our of our podcasts, the, the many that we have uh, recorded. And I realized that the two of you, the two of us probably need to kind of reintroduce what this is every time, even if it's just for a few minutes. Right. And so um, I thought that I would just mention that, you know, I'm in the Ohio market. Uh, you're an investment advisor in the Washington state market. And it's just kind of an opportunity for us to, to talk about different things that are important to people who are either coming into retirement or are already retired uh, and kind of compare and contrast how some of those things work in Ohio and how they work in Washington. And that's, that's kind of what the impetus of this. Well, and you know, we're, we've been doing this for decades now. And so we're just want to be a resource for folks out there that might be diving into it. I've worked with so many retirees and you have too. And, it can be really stressful. I mean, I know people years before they even retire, they start getting stressed out. Well, what am I going to do? And how am I going to get paid? And am I going to have enough money? And what about elder care? And what about this and that? And so, you know, since we've been doing this combined for, I don't know, 50 some years, probably, Cameron? Maybe, <laughs> I don't maybe know if it's, I don't know if it's quite. 30th year now. Yes, that, I don't know uh, if it's quite that bad you know, we can, uh, you know, just pass that along and, you know, we just want to be a resource and a help for people. Yeah. Yeah. And we've known each other for a long time. So we've known each other for not all of those 50 years, but it's not too far from that. Right. Yeah. So, you know, our history goes back and, you know, it's been, I was thinking just even last night how, you know, hopefully we can be a resource because Think about Cameron when we got in the business, what the our business looked like and what the financial markets look like and all these topics that we're talking about. I mean, everything was so different. And that's part of the the fun part, that's also part of the challenging part is, you know, markets, tax law, it's it's always changing. And what we're facing today we didn't face thirty years ago and you know, what may happen five, ten years from now, who knows? But that's why whether you know the people listening choose to use us or a local financial advisor to them, I think it's really important to have somebody on your team that can give you the guidance continually, um, because again, things are things are always changing. So yeah, I mean that's kind of the point of this. We just want to put it out there and help people as on their journey through retirement, to retirement, yeah. and through retirement. Yeah, it takes it takes a team, right? It takes a village to get you there. And, you know, an advisor is important. A tax accountant is important. But uh, obviously, a, uh, a a trusted attorney is, is a valued uh, aspect to this process. And so we have a guest today who is Rachel Houck. Uh, she is uh, a good friend of mine. I've known her for several years. And there's certain different aspects of, of attorneys, right? There's different types of specialties. And uh, Rachel, I just want to say welcome first. Welcome to the call with John and I. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. You bet. And uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Rachel, but in the state of Ohio, uh, my understanding is there's about 60,000 attorneys, which is a crazy number in my world, but there's 60,000 attorneys. Of those 60,000, only about 200 or so are actually certified elder care attorneys. And Rachel, you are one of them. And maybe you could just kind of talk to us briefly about what elder care certification means. 
Yeah. Um, so a certified, a certified elder law attorney is um, uh, an attorney who holds that distinction through the National Elder Law Foundation. Um, we have to uh, focus um, the majority of our practice on what we consider elder law and special needs planning. Um, we also have to focus all, pretty much all of our continuing education uh, requirements on elder law and special needs planning. <clears throat> so, you know, we're constantly educating ourselves, staying up on the current laws for um, that type of planning. Um, and we have to take a test. Um, it's a, a full day test um, over um, about 10 different topics. Um, and that includes Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, um, veterans benefits, um, different types of special needs trusts, um, as well as um, uh, estate planning, irrevocable trusts, revocable trusts, and some probate uh, uh, topics. So it's pretty comprehensive. Um, it, it's a pretty rigorous test. Uh, it's a national test. And then there is also in Ohio, we have an Ohio part of the test. Um, <clears throat> so because each state, while most of the states outside of California um, follow the same federal rules, what Medicaid is, it's a federal program run by the states. So each state is, is allowed to enact its own little nuances. It can change the rules. They, they cannot make the rules more restrictive than the federal rules, but they can put their own little nuances on it. So um, <clears throat> that being said, I'm only licensed in the state of Ohio. Um, while I'm a certified elder law attorney, uh, which is a national recognition, um, I, I'm only speaking, and I'll disclose, um, based on Ohio law. Um, so it's important to make sure you um, reach out to a certified elder law attorney in your state if you're not in Ohio with regards to anything I might be talking about today. Yeah, I imagine if someone's in Washington state, John, you've got some options for them to uh, excuse me, too. So uh, we just want this as an information type uh, podcast right now to, to, for people to get some ideas of where they can go next and what questions they should ask. Now, Rachel, in your practice, you, you have a partner. His name is Mike Menninger, and we'll probably have him on at some point. Uh, Mike tends to uh, do a lot of the pre-planning, so trust work, wills, trusts, irrevocable trusts, revocable trusts. Uh, you tend to specialize on uh, crisis care. And, and basically what that comes down to, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if you or your loved one finds yourself in a situation where you're going into a nursing home, uh, or going into a nursing home soon, and you haven't done as much pre-planning as you should have done, at least in the state of Ohio, you still have a fair amount of options to protect your assets. And maybe you can kind of talk to talk to some of that for someone who might be in that situation. Yeah, and that's right. So Mike, uh, my partner, he, we both are estate planners. Um, he focuses on, um, like you said, the pre-planning tax um, planning, um, business formation. And then <clears throat> I do the crisis planning. Um, I also do estate planning and some of that pre-planning. Um, but mostly what I'm spending my time on is um, helping families in a situation where, you know, mom, fa mom falls, uh, breaks her hip, 
they weren't expecting. She was perfectly fine before, and she ends up going into a facility, right? Can't come home. And so the average cost of care here in the state of Ohio when we're looking at a nursing home is about $10,000. Um, and so that becomes a major shock to families. Um, and even somebody who has a home and, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000, you can see how quickly uh, they could lose their money, spend all their money um, at ten dollars to $15,000 a month. And then it becomes more complicated when we have a spouse who's home um, because, you know, we don't want to spend all the money and the spouse become impoverished, right? So, so let me ask you that real quick because you and I just had the situation, right? Uh, exactly what you said. Lady fell. Uh, she ended up going into the hospital. Uh, she is not coming home and her husband is going to stay home. So at least in the state of Ohio, uh, if, if that person is going to want to get on Medicaid and get some help with that 10 to 15,000 potential dollars a month that they're going to have to spend, how much is that spouse that's staying at home and still has to live? What are they allowed to keep and use? Yeah, that's a good question. So when we're talking eligibility purposes for Medicaid, there's three eligibility requirements, okay? So there's an income eligibility, um, and people will get uh, kind of bogged down in that because Medicaid does have an income requirement where if you make more than that, technically you're not eligible for Medicaid today. And that's a federal number. It's um, 2851 um, a month gross income um, for the applicant only. So if we have a married couple, it's not both of their incomes combined. It's just the applicant. <clears throat> so, and let me, and, uh, and hold the thought, right? We, I want to yep. get to the other points here. The, the challenge in that situation, I think you would agree, is that, and I, I just had a couple in the office this week, um, where the husband is the main bread earner, right? He's got a pension, he's got Social Security. The spouse, uh, she's only uh, got half of his Social Security as a spousal add-on. So in, in the situation you're talking about, if that gentleman who, who produces most of the income for the family goes into a nursing home, their overall income as a couple is going to be impacted. That is correct. And I, Cameron, I want to um, correct my number. I was using a VA number when I said that. The income limit for uh, for Medicaid is 2523. I'm sorry. Okay. No um, but um, yeah, now in Ohio, we do have the ability to, um, Medicaid will do a calculation uh, to shift some of, in the example you provided, that husband's income to, a, to the wife. Um, but they, they only bring them up to a maximum amount, and that maximum is $3,435, $3,435 a month. So she, unless she makes more than that on her own, right, she will never get more than $3,435 from the husband. <clears throat> That's the maximum. Um, there is a minimum and the uh, where they will bring them to, and it is that income, that 2523 number. Okay. Um, there is the ability to do uh, make a basically petition them under a hardship theory. So for some reason, if they've got you know a five hundred thousand dollar house and they've got multiple mortgages on it, right, and the wife needs to pay for that mortgage she can potentially petition Medicaid for a hardship uh, ruling. So there is that. All right. Well, I interrupted you. So we were talking about the three different things. So that income was the first, and I'll let you go ahead and continue. Yeah. So um, 
never get tied up about the income, at least in Ohio. Um, that is one rule that Ohio has made more lenient. Uh, we can open up what's called a qualified income trust. And I jokingly tell my clients it's like legal money laundering. Um, <laughs> it, it's really just a glorified um, checking account where we're taking the excess income over and above that 2523 and we're siphoning it through that account and then it's going to go to the facility. So um, that's something that Ohio has allowed um, because when the new rules passed with Medicaid, it was going to kick a bunch of people off. Um, and so instead of just saying there is, so basically in Ohio, there is no income cap, right? Um, but that qualified income trust does have to be set up to become eligible. <clears throat> and you have to fund that every month. Um, so income eligibility, and then we have our medical need. So in Ohio, we have uh, three types of Medicaid, long-term care, so the nursing home Medicaid, and then we have two what we call waiver programs for assisted living and for Passport. Uh, Passport is our in-home care program here in Ohio. Um, and not all states have those waiver programs, but there's obviously different levels of care um, that you have to meet for each of those waiver programs. And then uh, lastly, it's the assets. And the asset issue, Cameron, and this is what you were asking me about as the married couple, um, is typically the one where the elder law attorney like me is going to be of the, the greatest need and assistance. So for a married couple, we're allowed to have a house, um, a car, prepaid funerals, um, small life insurance policies with a, with a cash value of $1,500 or less. Um, and then um, for a married couple, to be eligible today, uh, they can have about $25,000 in other assets. If you're an individual, you can have all of those other exempt things that I just talked about, but only $2,000 in assets. Okay. So those assets, and this, and this is before Medicaid will kick in, those, those assets have to be basically spent down in care of this person, correct? Uh, well, that is a common misconception and a lot of, and not to pick on nursing homes or facilities, a lot of them do great things for people and do in fact point people in the correct direction. But a lot of people are mistaken that um, in order to become eligible for Medicaid, we have to spend all that money on the care. And the reality of the situation is we have tools that allow us um, to uh, preserve those assets and or there's other things that we can spend it on besides care. So if we talk let's, about- Let's, let's talk yeah. about the tools first, okay? So sure. what, what are the tools that um, a good, and, and, and all of this is about having a trusted advisor, right? Um, and I think, John, you would agree with this. Um, if you're if you're going to enter into this time of your life of retirement and then potentially later in life of, of needing some long-term care assistance, there's value in having a trusted advisor, right, John? Right. I mean, that's what I was talking about, you know, at the beginning, that just to have a resource, you know, somebody you can call on and say, well, hey, what about this? And what about that? And like, again, everything's changing and, and you know, the laws change on elder care. And so, yeah, to just stay on top of it and things you can do, it can save you thousands and thousands of dollars just doing the right planning. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> In Rachel's situation, it's hundreds of thousands. So talk to us a little bit, Rachel, about the tools that, at least in, in our market, that are available. And I'm sure there's something similar in, in the Washington state or, or whatever state someone might be listening to this in. 
Yeah. So typically state to state outside of California. Okay. If you're, if you're listening from California, just turn this off, go find a, uh, someone licensed in California. Um, they have completely different rules. Um, but m- most of our planning tools and, and strategies are generally the same state to state. It's the little tiny things like that QIT I was talking about or um, the average cost of care in the state that might differ, right? So typically these tools that I'm gonna talk about um, <clears throat> are available throughout the the nation. Um, But I do want to make a point that when I use that $25,000 number for a married couple, that's to be eligible right now today. So most of my clients, um, whether married or single, come to me um, and they have obviously more than that $25,000 or more than that $2,000. And so what I'm doing is helping families appropriately spend down, if you will, if necessary. Um, And then I'm converting those assets into um, potentially exempt resources. So a married couple, if we have more than $25,000, Medicaid says the healthy spouse, we refer to them as the community spouse, and that's our jargon, legal jargon, if you will. Um, they get to keep one half of those assets, but no more than a hundred and um, uh, one hundred and thirty-eight. Well, it's technically one hundred and thirty-seven, four hundred dollars. I just say one hundred and thirty-eight. It's easier. So, if if somebody comes to me and they have a house and three hundred thousand dollars in assets. The healthy spouse is going to be allowed to keep that $138,000 that, those, and the house. Those assets in excess of that $138,000 are now what we call countable resources for that um, ill spouse or the institutionalized spouse. So that's when I guide the family and say, okay, do we have, are there any exempt resources we can purchase? Prepaid funerals? Right? Do we have um, an outstanding mortgage that we want to pay off that reduces the like what you were talking about before, Cameron, with the income? You know that will basically make the spouse's income that gives her a raise, right? If she doesn't have to pay a mortgage. Um, uh, Do we need a new car? Are there um, repairs on the home that need to be done that we've been putting off? Um, Are there hearing aids that we've been waiting to buy and we just haven't done it? Do we need a wheelchair? You know, all of these different types of legitimate spend down, we talk through that. If um, there is no need for that, or once we've completed that spend down, um, what I do with a married couple is I convert those excess resources into an annuity because the healthy spouse gets to keep her income or his income, right? Correct. Uh, So what I do is I convert those assets into an income stream back to the healthy spouse. And we call that a Medicaid compliant annuity. And it's not an investment type annuity like you think of, like a typical annuity, right, that you guys might sell. Um, it's really more of an insurance policy is what I tell my clients, right? We're putting this money into this annuity and we're going to be guaranteed that we're going to get it all back at a fixed amount each month over a specific term. So it's an immediate annuity. It is. Yes. It It must be immediate. 
but but and, and just John, just to kind of bring you into the fold too on this, and that um, when when John and I typically talk to a client about an annuity, and an, and an annuity is a great tool to develop an income stream, right? That's that does a very good job, but even on an immediate annuity, we're usually looking at a pretty long payout. Sometimes we're looking for a payout over life. Sometimes we're looking at a ten-year certain payout. You know, there's there's all kinds of different payout options. Rachel, on the, on the annuity that you're talking about, from the standpoint that you can pay that income out, let's say someone puts $100,000 into one of the annuities you're discussing, they can generate an income stream in a very short period of time to pay that out, correct? Yeah. So to be compliant, um, a Medicaid compliant annuity, a single, it has to be a single premium immediate annuity. Um, the, the term of the, of the annuity cannot be longer than the annuitant's social security life expectancy. So if I have a 74 year old whose life expectancy is eight years, I cannot make that term a 12 year annuity. It has to be something less than eight, but it can be as short as potentially two months. I don't typically do that. uh, but it, it can be as short as two months. There's no minimum term, only a limit on the maximum term. Yeah, and that's, and that's how it's structured differently than what we as investment advisors would typically look at in an annuity. And I just want to call that out because um, I didn't want someone to be confused and think that, that they're called the same thing, but they're not quite apples to apples. That's right. It's not an investment tool. It's a asset preservation tool. Correct. That's how I kind of distinguish it to my families. And so the, the purpose of that is that over that term, whatever that is, three years, let's say, that $150,000 um, that otherwise would have had to been spent to the nursing home um, is now converted to an income stream back to the healthy spouse. At the end of those three years, um, they now have all of their $250,000 back um, and can proceed with their life and their spouse, their ill spouse has been receiving Medicaid that entire time. The only cost they've been out of pocket was his income. Correct. And as soon as those funds are converted into that annuity, that ill spouse is now eligible for Medicaid. And so you can do that, Rachel, without having to do it years before, you can do that. Ask that question again, John. You don't have to do it years, you know, before anybody goes into a nursing home. Nope. And yeah, because a lot of times, and let's talk about that real quickly, because I I think probably Rachel, you're going to get to that on on some of the additional tools. But typically, there's a five-year look back, and I think that's probably what John's talking about. So maybe you could address that because it doesn't apply in this situation because it's the spouse, correct? Yeah, and we're not giving it away. So the, the five-year look back is, um, is a federal rule, um, so it applies in Washington as well. And <clears throat> what it says is if a Medicaid applicant or their spouse okay, gives away an asset for less than fair market value, um, then Medicaid will penalize them uh, and say, okay, you, if, let's say they had $100,000, and they give it all away to their son and they turn around and apply for Medicaid, and they, only, they have less than $2,000, so they're asset eligible. <clears throat> Medicaid will say, hey, great, you're approved, congratulations. However, you gave away that $100,000 that you could have otherwise used for your care. Therefore, while you're eligible, we aren't gonna pay for your care for 
18 months. And now somebody has to come up with 10 to $15,000 a month for those 18 months. So um, that, that's the look back, right? And each state has its own. In Ohio, our, we are, what Ohio Medicaid claims is the average monthly cost of care is $6,905. Um, so for every $6,905 a Medicaid applicant or their spouse gives away inside of five years of applying for Medicaid, that's one month they don't cover the care. But because these are spousal assets, you don't, you're not giving money to your spouse. You, you own them together. Correct. And so that's why we're not in that situation. Correct. <clears throat> so uh, a lot of times, for example, that's how, I, that's how typically I save everything for a spouse, okay? Um, a lot of the more complicated cases come when I'm doing an individual. Um, and when I'm doing an individual, we actually do planned gifting. Um, and, and we do that intentionally and disclose it to Medicaid. So for example, somebody comes to me and has $100,000 um, and a house and they're going into a nursing home and they're gonna sell the house, right? Um, so what I might do is take the house, especially in this market, right? Um, let's say the house has an auditor's value of 150,000, but we know that with the market right now, they're gonna be able to sell that for 220. So I take that house, I intentionally put it into what I refer to as an irrevocable trust or a Medicaid asset protection trust. I transfer the house from the Medicaid ap applicant to the trust. I then take the $100,000 in cash, all right, and I can do one of two things. I can do a, an annuity, make it an income stream to the applicant, right? Or, because remember their income goes to the facility each month, or I put it into um, a type of special needs trust here in Ohio, we call it a pooled trust, P-O-O-L-E-D, pooled trust. And then I disclose that to Medicaid. And Medicaid says, hey, great, you're eligible, congratulations, but you gave away $150,000 into that irrevocable trust. And because you did that, we're not gonna pay for your care for 18 months, but I already knew that. And so I put that $100,000 either in that annuity or I put it in the pooled trust. And so that I knew I did the calculation that if they're paying $10,000 a month and they had $4,000 of income, I knew I needed an extra $6,000 for the next 18 months, right? So at the end of 18 months, my annuity is either paid out or my pooled trust is down to zero. Medicaid kicks in, starts paying that additional money over my income, and my house is now forever preserved uh, for my legacy um, and is also, more importantly, protected from what we call Medicaid estate recovery. Now, when we talk about the, the five-year look back, you know, let's talk about that a little bit in, re in regards to an irrevocable trust, because if if you if you were able to get ahead of this a little bit and, mm -hmm. and put some money into irrevocable trust uh, and, and didn't have control of it, the individual going into a nursing home did not have full control over it anymore. Those assets would still be protected, right? We're, we're, what we've been talking about is last minute <laughs> protection, but yep. maybe, maybe just just shortly, because I'm sure Mike, when he talks, will will go into this in more depth. But maybe talk to us just a little bit briefly about a little bit of pre planning aspect. 
Yeah. So the the look back the five years, um, it, it it goes both ways, right? So I intentionally disclosed to Medicaid in a crisis case that I've done gifting inside of that five-year period. Um, and that's when I get that, what they call penalty period or that period of restricted coverage. But I also have people come to me, um, let's say with a diagnosis of, uh, uh, of Alzheimer's or dementia, right? They just received this diagnosis. Um, as of now, they're competent, they're fine, but there is a large chance that they may end up in a facility at some point and, and need long-term care um, and maybe that facility will or won't take Medicaid but at that point if we can transfer all of their assets or as many as they're comfortable doing into that irrevocable trust okay it's a gift we've given it away we put it in that trust um, after five years if that individual ends up going into a facility and wants to go on Medicaid all of those assets are now invisible they're no longer countable. It's like they aren't theirs. And so we aren't doing any spend down. Um, there's some tax benefits in that Medicaid Asset Protection Trust as well. Um, but we do that a lot, uh, you know, when we're talking about um, pre-planning. And, and maybe somebody comes and there's no diagnosis, but they're concerned about those long-term care costs. And they say, well, why would I do that if I, if I don't know that I'm going to need it? And my argument is, but you're gonna have the option. If you don't do it, you have no option and you're potentially gonna lose all or half of your assets, right? Why not have the option? Right. Now, most of the time, do you set the kids up as the trustee or <coughs> professional trustees? What you're doing? Yeah, um, I'm sorry. Um, one of the um, downsides <clears throat> of this type of trust is that the trust maker, so mom and dad, the person putting the assets into the trust cannot be the trustee. You cannot have control. You're giving up control. So they have to pick someone to be the trustee. Yes, I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, um, mom and dad are picking one or more of their children to be trustees. <clears throat> Certainly, um, they can pick whoever they want. Um, you know, they can trust. They can pick a trusted advisor. Um, I'm the trustee of a special needs trust right now for an individual um, because it was just him and his mom and his mom passed away. So he needs somebody else to be trustee for that. I can tell you it's difficult to find fiduciary trustees if you don't have significant funds in that trust. Yeah, because it's expensive, right? I mean, it's, yeah. no one's going to do it for free. Correct. That people and, you know, like... I, you know, I'm kind of doing this out of the goodness of my heart for this guy. Um, there's not a lot in it, but yeah, they're going to charge a percentage and they want it to be worth their time. Let me ask you a couple of quick questions here as we're kind of coming to the end here in the near future. Um, first and foremost, if, if, if you had a family that came to you on the first of the month, okay, uh, and they were in a situation where they had a loved one that was going into a nursing home, how quickly could you, as long as they can get all their stuff together, how quickly can you make that person Medicare eligible, even if they have a lot of assets? Yeah, Medicaid, make sure we- I'm we sorry, I'm Medicaid. sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Um, it's an easy thing to do. Um, so I, if somebody comes to me within the first week of the month and we're liquid, meaning we aren't tied up in life insurance or um, you know, annuities, IRAs, those types of things, I mean, if it's all liquid and so long as they're willing to jump in with me, I mean, we can do it in days, honestly. Yeah. Um, 
I typically promise people within 30 days, if they come to me within the first couple weeks of the month and we're liquid, um, I, I can normally get it done by the last day of the month. And the benefit to that is with Medicaid, so long as you're um, eligible and applied by the last day of the month, it's typically retroactive to the first day of the month. So if we, um, somebody goes into a nursing home, you know, August 2nd, we apply by August 31st, the application pens for three to four months. Once they're approved, it's gonna go back to August 1st. So that whole time, all they're responsible to the facility for is their income. And if, if this family or this individual's already been in a nursing home for a couple of months and they've been writing ten dollars to $15,000 checks, they're probably somewhat motivated, right? You would hope so, yes. You would hope so. It's not always yeah. the case, but you would hope so. Yeah. Um, one other question I wanted to ask is that uh, I know we talked about the house um, being available to the surviving spouse, but can you talk a little bit, at least in the state of Ohio, there are some situations where Medicaid can come back and put a lien against that house. And I, I'd like to just talk about that so that no one's surprised by that if it happens to them. Yeah, so it's important when we're talking, and again, this isn't in every state, not all states have what we call a state recovery, but in Ohio we do, and Ohio is pretty aggressive about um, um, doing it after a Medicaid recipient dies. Um, and it's also important to remember there's lots of different types of Medicaid. Not all of them have a payback requirement, okay? Um, so with long-term care, age-blind and disabled Medicaid, <clears throat> there is this payback requirement. So Medicaid says anything that you own in your name at the time of your death, whether it has a transfer on death on it, a, a right of survivorship, whether no matter how we have a beneficiary designation, any of those types of things, Medicaid is the first um, payee to that. So for the house, for example, if an individual, if an individual only has a house and less than $2,000 and they go on Medicaid, they're gonna get, or they apply for Medicaid, they're gonna get approved because the house is exempt. But if that house is not out of their name by the time they die, when they die, Medicaid will put a lien against it for up to what they paid out on behalf of that individual. Even if the house has a transfer on death to the kids. So it's something that a family or an individual needs to be very thoughtful of on the front end of this, correct? Yeah, and I tell that to my families all the time. Listen, we're not just trying to get you eligible or your loved one eligible. There's the second end to that, and it's preventing um, state recovery, especially if we have a healthy spouse. Yeah. And, and so, um, or disabled children or whatever that might be. So it's important that we focus on that too. And that's something that we do here as well, not especially in um, married couple situations. Our first and primary focus is getting them eligible and approved for Medicaid to stop the bleeding, Cameron, like you talked about the $10,000, $15,000 a month. But once we've done that, more importantly, we come back around to that healthy spouse and we do that planning. We make sure we get all the assets out of the recipient's name. We make sure we start that irrevocable trust for the healthy spouse to start that five-year clock. Um, and so the, the goal is there to try to protect all the assets from both of their long-term care event. Good. And one other thing, and that is that, and we don't need to go into this in depth, but if you are a veteran, there are some additional benefits, correct? Yes. So um, wartime veteran, 
or surviving spouse of a wartime veteran, um, you need to look up the wartime periods. They're specific. Um, it's important to know that you do not have to, for example, if you were active duty um, during the Korean wartime, you do not have to be boots on the ground in Korea. You could have been in Germany, but you have to be active serving one day during a wartime period and 90 consecutive days, either before that day or after that day. Uh, you have to be discharged for something other than, um, or, I'm sorry, something other than un dishonorably discharged. <laughs> so there's like four different ways to be discharged. You just cannot have been dishonorably discharged. Um, and then you have to meet certain income and um, medical need requirements. But the benefit to that, it's called aid and attendance. It's part of the improved pension program. And what it does is it gives them the veteran or the surviving spouse, it gives them extra income to help pay for their medical expenses. So it's um, really, really helpful when we want to try to keep a veteran or a surviving spouse home. It gives them potentially up to almost $2,500 a month in extra monies to pay for those medical expenses. Also, if we go into an assisted living facility, it helps us meet that difference between our income and that cost of care. So it's a really, really um, helpful tool for wartime veterans and their surviving spouses. And I, I will say this, Cameron and John, because I, I come across it all the time. I'll sit down with a family and I'll say, was mom or dad a veteran? And they'll say, oh yeah, but we already checked into that. We don't qualify for anything. Well, what they aren't told when they ask the VA, when they asked them five years ago, um, what they aren't told is, well, you don't qualify right now, right? Because you're healthy and you don't meet the medical need. But they don't say, if that happens, come back. So yeah. they just think, oh, I'm not eligible, right? Yes. So, so go ahead. No, that's it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so in the end, Rachel and, and John, in the end, it's not too late, right? If, if you find out that your spouse or your loved one is, is going to have to go into a nursing home and you haven't done a lot of pre-planning, it's not too late. There's options for you. There may be options that you didn't think about or options that you were told you weren't available or uh, that were available to you. But there are, if you spend a few minutes and I, and, you know, Rachel, you're very gracious about sitting down with someone for an hour, an hour and a half, not charging them, just kind of getting an idea of where they're at and where they could go. There's, there's trusted professionals out there that can help you get where you need to go in a, in a reasonable way, correct? Yeah, it, and quite frankly, it's it's never too late. I mean, I had a case um, where an individual called me. His grandma had been in a facility for three years, and he had just been paying privately, and he was getting starting to get, get low on proceeds and had all this property that he was trying to, that was his, partly his, right? It was just him and his grandma. And um, luckily, he came to me in time, and I was able to preserve all that property, and we were going to have to spend the money, but I could preserve the property. Um, whereas if he would have just continued based on what he was told by the facility to pay them everything, he would have got down to the point where he would have had to sell at least half of the property to save the other half, right? Wow. So even if you've been in, a, if your loved one has been in a facility, if you still have money, it's not too late. It's not too late. too late. Great. It's never too late. Now, one final comment, and you can kind of correct it, correct my math here a little bit, Rachel, but at least from what I've seen, if you wait and you don't pre-plan and you come into a crisis situation like you deal with every day, it's probably going to cost you 
two, three, four times what it would have costed you just to set up trusts and estates ahead of time. Is that about right? Yes. So there's certainly an impetus to get ahead of this, but at the same time, if you can save somebody hundreds of thousands of dollars, even if they didn't pre-plan, it's still a good deal, isn't it? I mean, yes. I mean, that's, I, I, I understanding, understand that what I do and my expertise isn't necessarily cheap, but Mike and I are really good at what we do. Many other certified outer law attorneys um, are really good at what they do. And my argument is you can pay me or you can pay it to the facility um, four times over. Um, so, you know, uh, it, it, that's, that's the decision the family has to make. Um, dollar for dollar, it's kind of a no-brainer. Exactly. Especially, Rachel, I'm sure you would allow people to at least, you know, have a initial interview with you and say, and you, and you'd probably be upfront and say, look, I can't help you or I can't. Yes. You know, I, I would encourage everybody out there, at least make a phone call. It doesn't cost you anything to make a phone call and talk to some people and, you know, and then make the decision from there. Yeah. Quite frankly, Mike and I, our philosophy and our practice is, um, you know, we're not here to, to sell or plan for people that they don't need it. Um, and I do, I do that every day. I have referral sources that, that have people call me. I talk to them over the phone. I offer a free hour consultation and I'm straight up with them and say, Hey, listen, mom's eligible. You know, if you want to pay me to do the application, I, you know, I will, but the facility can do that for you. There's no reason for you to pay me to do that. Um, unless you want to. And some people say, well, I would rather you do it than the facility, but, but I'm not going to, um, do planning or, or ask someone to pay me harder money if it's not something that's going to benefit them. Um, we just don't believe in that. Well, John, in the end, you, at the beginning of this podcast, you had mentioned the, the how long we've been doing this together and separately. And we have done retirement planning for a long time. But at the same instance, there's a lot of professionals out there that can provide a lot of additional guidance that you and I can't. And, and right. being able to hook clients up with a, with a professional like Rachel or like her partner, Mike, who we'll be hearing from soon, I, is, is a true value in being the quarterback of someone's retirement planning. For sure. And, you know, I mean, that part of what I do and you do too, Cameron, is people come to us maybe initially, um, but we can refer them out to people like Rachel or other people that, you know, accountants or whatever that they might need some help with. But, you know, at least having a conversation with somebody like Rachel and finding out if, yeah, if you're already eligible, great. You know, you don't need all to spend a bunch of money on, you know, trusts and so forth. But, man, if if you need Rachel's help uh, to spend a few thousand bucks to spend, you know, to save hundreds of thousands, it's uh, when you look at it from, the investment lens that Cameron, you and I tend to look at more, you know, if you can spend X and get a three to four times multiple, I mean, I mean I'm always interested in that. Well, and I can tell you from personal experience, Rachel and, and attorneys like her who are elder care certified are definitely worth 
any you know the dollar amount that you have to pay for them there's a certain certainly a return on investment there so rachel i really appreciate your time today john and i both do and uh looking forward to getting to talk to mike in the near future yeah i appreciate you guys having me certainly anybody listening to this feel free to check out our website um hm law um and uh, health manager, uh, feel free to reach out. Our emails are on there if you have any questions or concerns. And then of course, also um, just a shout out to the National Elder Law Foundation. If you aren't in Ohio um, and you're trying to find a certified elder law attorney, if you go to NELF.org, there's a, a directory of all of us who are certified in the country. Um, and so that's where I always tell people to start um, outside of the state of Ohio um, for, for help when we're, when we're talking about um, outer law assistance. So thanks again, guys. You bet. I'll put all that information in the notes. Thanks, John. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Securities and investment advisory services for Kemba Bernatsky offered through Founders Financial Securities, LLC, members FINRA and SIPC and a registered investment advisor. And for John Williamson, Alexander Capital, LP, members FINRA and SIPC and a registered investment advisor.